Every year this Sunday, um, a couple of weeks into the Easter season, features in the lectionary passages about the Good Shepherd. Often it's the 23rd Psalm, often it's from John 10. And our scripture reading today will come from John 10, starting at verse 22. This, is, um, this has references to Christ as a shepherd. It also occurs when the tensions between Christ and the religious officials are, is growing, um, yet he still circles back to this image of the shepherd. At that time, the festival of the dedication, or Hanukkah, took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, early let us turn to you. Amen. As ambivalent as I am about social media and as detached from its use as I am, I must admit that technology is a great thing. It is a great thing to be able to take advantage of technology by going online and through Google listen to recordings of voices from events or entertainment in our nation's history that happened during or before my lifetime and yet still have the capacity to stir my soul. In 1964, sitting in the yellow family station wagon in the parking lot of a Mercury dealership in Memphis, Tennessee, while my parents shopped for what was then called a second car, I listened to the voice of Harry Carey burst forth in a Trinitarian exclamation, the Cardinals win the pennant, the Cardinals win the pennant, the Cardinals win the pennant. Though my team allegiances have, have since shifted, it was the beginning of baseball being a part of my life. A decade or so later, in a large film class in college, for which I and most others had signed up because it was the easiest way to meet a fine arts requirement. I was mesmerized by the film Citizen Kane, and I was intrigued by the final word, Rosebud, that Charles Foster Kane whispers as his long life comes to an end. 
And by the next frame of the movie, in which a small snow sled bearing the name Rosebud burns in a bonfire along with many other excess belongings from the attic of Cain's extravagant mansion in which he had spent his latter years alone. I was riveted when the professor explained that as a child, Cain had been sledding with that very sled the day he was taken from his home and his mother. It was his search for a lost childhood that fueled Cain's drive, domination, and destructiveness. Charles Foster Cain had become Citizen Cain out of an endless search for the maternal love from which he had been separated as a child. A love for which we are grateful this day if we have had it and mournful if it is missing from our lives. Other lines voiced in movies have stayed with me all my life and spoken to different parts of who I am. Marlon Brando's, I could have been a contender in On the Waterfront. His anguished but not fully repentant cry in a streetcar named Desire, Stella! And the mysterious voice Kevin Costner as Ray Kinsella hears in a cornfield in Iowa, if you build it, he will come. The he referring to Shoeless Joe Jackson, a player involved in the 1919 World Series scandal. The he also referring to Kinsella's own late father who had written about Jackson. A he which, when made plural, was transformed into a theme of businesses and churches and organizations all over the world today. If you build it, they will come. I'm also moved when technology allows me to hear voices of leaders speaking to our nation during days of challenge, accomplishment, or mourning. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. One small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. They slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Once we leave the world of technology, history, and cinema, we can encounter the power of the voice in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. The call of Isaiah the prophet, whom shall I send and who shall go for us? Here am I, send me. The love poetry and the song of songs. The voice of my beloved. Look, he comes leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. And the voice of the risen Christ, speaking to Peter directly and through scripture to us 
indirectly, follow thou me. Throughout the literature of the Bible, there is a link between the power of the voice and the omnipresent image of the shepherd. The word shepherd is used 118 times in the Bible, a fact readily accessible through Google. I didn't count them up myself. In the Old Testament, shepherds appear early as in his short biblical life, Abel is a keeper of sheep. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, we see that shepherds can be pastoral, nomadic or settled, wealthy or poor. By the time the book of Genesis ends, God has come to be called the shepherd of Israel. And later, the kings of Israel inherit this title and are subject to great criticism from the prophets when they are corrupt, faithless or unjust, which often they were. By the time the Old Testament draws to a close, the people of Israel have begun to yearn for a Messiah. And at times that yearning is expressed as a yearning for a shepherd. For example, Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. In the New Testament, the word shepherd appears 26 times, six of which are in the 10th chapter of John, portions of which we just read. Early in this chapter, a part we didn't read, read, Jesus claims the title of shepherd for himself. I am the good shepherd, he says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand doesn't care for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus then in this chapter links shepherd with voice. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold, he says. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. A strong and rich aspect of the good shepherd, the title that Christ claims for himself, is the voice of the shepherd. They will listen to my voice. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. As a preacher, anytime I speak of hearing the voice of God or Christ speaking to us, I know that a number of people will assume and hope that I am speaking symbolically. A number will look down at their bulletins in awkward silence. 
And a number will say to themselves, God has spoken to me, but if I say anything about it, people might avoid me. Wherever you fall among these numbers, stay with me. A blogger named Debbie Thomas posts an essay each Monday morning on the lectionary passage on which many clergy will be preaching the following Sunday. As you might imagine, she gets a fair amount of traffic on Monday, but as the week goes goes along by Saturday night, her site is jammed. In her essay posted this past Monday, Thomas writes, Whatever belief I arrive at in this life will not come from the ups and downs of my own emotional life. It will not come from a creed, a doctrine, or a cleverly worded sermon. Rather, it will come from the daily, hourly business of belonging to Jesus' flock, of walking in the footsteps of the shepherd, living in the company of fellow sheep, and listening in real time for the voice of the one whose classroom is rocky hills, hidden pastures, and deeply shadowed valleys. If I won't follow him into those places of both tranquility and treachery, of trust and doubt, I will never belong to him at all. Thomas continues, Sheep know their shepherd because they are his. They walk, graze, feed, and sleep in his shadow, beneath his rod and staff, within constant earshot of his voice. They believe because they have surrendered to his care, his authority, his leadership, and his guidance. There is no belonging from the outside. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Belonging, belong, Jesus says. Consent to belong. Belief will follow. My friends, whether Christ speaks to us through our ears, our hearts, our minds, or our consciousness, Christ speaks. We hear his voice in whatever ways fit us in real time in the classroom of rocky hills, hidden pastures, deeply shadowed valleys. 39 years ago, almost to the day, I received my Master of Divinity degree in the graduation ceremony in the quad at Union Theological Seminary in New York. I boarded a U-Haul truck the next day and drove across the country to the church in West Texas where I had been called to serve as associate pastor for youth ministries. I was able to get there for the final youth fellowship meeting of that school year. As soon as I stepped out of that truck onto that sandy soil, I stepped into the role of being a pastor, a role from which I have never 
been away in the years since. Three years earlier, at the age of 21, I had entered far too quickly into a marriage I should not have entered. By the time I set foot in West Texas, it had begun to fall apart. Two years later, on Labor Day weekend, it had formally ended. And I spent the day cleaning the small house and getting the yard in shape so that the house could be sold and its minimal proceeds divided. I worked alone and did a lot of thinking. I felt guilt. I felt shame. I felt embarrassment. Divorce was not something that had much place in my moral or Christian frame of reference. I was haunted by the feeling that I would be a minister who would always feel the need to explain why I had failed in this important area of life. Eight years earlier at my father's funeral, his partner in the business they had founded selling packaging materials from manufacturers to wholesalers, had said to me, if you ever want to go into the business, give me a call. That hot, lonely afternoon, I thought, maybe I should just become a really good layperson in the church, teaching Sunday school, serving on the session, perhaps even making a lot of money, and giving it to the church. I did not have the man's phone number, but I knew I could find it through what in those days was called directory assistance. (laughs) In Atlanta, where he lived, I knew I could find it because he was a man who had three first names, so there was an initial, initial, initial in his last name. I also knew that he and his family would probably be at their lake house for this holiday weekend, as we had been with them several times when I was a child. But I decided to call and leave a message on his answering machine. The phone rang and rang and rang and rang. The answering machine did not pick up. When I got up the next day, the Tuesday after Labor Day, busy week in the life of the church, I went to the office at the church. I got busy planning rally day, the youth kickoff, the upcoming middle school retreat. I attended a staff meeting. I made a hospital visit. Late in the day, I realized that I hadn't tried to call again. I've long since come to believe that in the silence of the unplugged answering machine, in the silence of the unanswered call, the voice of the shepherd was speaking to me. It never occurred to me to place that call again.